Hey, and welcome to Nightlight. It's been well over 25 years since I first made the attempt to address the subject of music on a large scale. Not only because I knew of the power of music in my own life for good as well as for evil, and not only because I knew of the power of it in the culture and what it was doing to us or what it could do for us if if used correctly. But I I felt a strong urgency to try to get through to parents, especially concerning the effects of music on their children. And, you know, one thing I discovered as I tried to, to make that information available in a, in a form that parents could digest, I discovered a tremendous naivety among parents. For instance, I was doing a a lecture at a church on the subject of the effects of music on the psyche. And for some reason, I, I lacked some of the material that I wanted to use as a demonstration. And so it turned out one of the young people in the church uh, had a, a record album that typified the kind of seduction and lyrical content that I wanted to use to get the attention of the parents. And I mean, it was obviously not a very professional or polished presentation, was it? I was just trying to, to get some things across and wanted to have some things in hand that they could not avoid. I wasn't trying to be unnecessarily uh, shocking because even as far back as the late 70s, I didn't have to be unnecessarily shocking. The lyrics were pretty shocking, even for those days. But the pastor of this particular group was really upset at me after he heard the presentation and heard me quote these particular lyrics because he he was incensed that his young people would be exposed to those kind of lyrics. And it just so happened, as it turned out, that it was his own daughter that I got the uh, the record from. So his daughter had been listening to this stuff in his own house, and he didn't even know it. Well, in in the last twenty five plus years since that event, I have tried to continually catch up with the information. You know, but uh, it, it would change so fast. There was no way in the world to, to do it. And I don't want to just focus on lyrics. I'm, I'm talking here about bad lyrics, but uh, that's really kind of another another subject from the, the meaning and title of our of our topic today, the power of music. I, I don't want to address the, the, the content, lyrics, etc. so much here. That's been done better in other places. For instance, in Real to Real Ministries that I pointed out to you in the newsletter portion of your, new, of your nightlight this month. And I really want to just take the time here to say to any of you who have children or teenagers especially, please obtain Eric Holmberg's material. There's no reason for me to reinvent the wheel, but uh, it's been done in such a a powerful and clear presentation that uh, it'll help you. And for you to be able to sit down with your children and and, uh, teenagers and address these subjects in your own living room openly in a spirit of love and in a spirit of truth uh, is worth your effort and your investment and your time. You'll be glad you did it. But in our time together today, on the first half of of, uh, this tape, I want to talk to you about the power of music itself. And then in the second half of our time together, I want to talk to you about specifically uh, spiritual warfare and the power of music in the kingdom of God. And there's so much that I want to say to you that, that I can't do in one hour. But but please think about this with me. You know this, but, but maybe you don't think about it. There's something mysterious about music, something mystical, something supernatural, if I can use so strong a term. It, I don't think it is too strong a term. For instance... Man is spirit, soul, and body. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Music is melody, harmony, and rhythm. There's this 
this corresponding Trinitarian thumbprint in it all. The music has the power to penetrate the soul into the spirit and can affect the whole being for, for good or for evil. Aristotle made the statement that music was such a dangerous, potentially dangerous weapon that he thought the state should regulate its activity. And Plato said when the, when the mode of the music changes, the walls of the city shake. In other words, when the music changes, it, it has the power to affect the security of the civilization in which the music is changing. So much so was that a fact in the ancient world that the, the ancient Chinese emperors would send spies out throughout the Chinese empire to hear and report back to the emperor what kind of music the people were listening to because the emperors discerned changes in the political uh, wind based on the level of the music's attitude. Now, how many times have we all heard the scripture referred to from Job 38, where God is speaking to Job, and he says, where were you, Job, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And in that poetic picture of the creation of the universe, we get a, a glimpse of the, the way music was a part of the creation. Both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien adapt that concept of music being part of the creation in uh, Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia and in Tolkien's description of the creation of the world uh, in the Silmarillion. You have this this picture of God singing. Well, it's based on Job 38, where the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And the implication is that that, that the first thing God did was create the angels, and then they sang the rest of creation. Uh, not that not that their singing was the creation, but that, that there was a backdrop of soundtrack music for the rest of the creation, so to speak. And of course, you know that in movies, don't you? When you're watching a movie, uh, the soundtrack can decide for you what kind of mood you're in. What, what You can take spooky music and put it behind what was meant to be a comedic scene, and all of a sudden the scene becomes scary, or vice versa. You can take a, a scary scene and put funny music behind it, and it all of a sudden takes on a, a different aura than the, the picture part was meant to portray. Or even worse, you can take a scary picture, put scary music behind it, and make the emotions much worse. Or, or the make the fear much worse. The idea that music is neutral is, is one of those silly statements made by dishonest people when they are being confronted by the fact that music has a power to manipulate for, for, for evil or to influence for good. And, and the silly soph sophistries that uh, you'll hear people state, they're so ridiculous, I don't give any place to them in our time together here today. But rather, I want to just give you a couple of quotes from people whose life and uh, career is wrapped up in music. And I want you to just consider what they say. Forget the number of teenagers you hear say, I don't listen to the words, man, I just listen to the music as if the music has no power to influence. And it's not just rock and roll either. I mean, how many of you know the story of Igor Stravinsky's uh, first presentation of The Rite of Spring? For those of you who don't know that story, I mean, The Rite of Spring, that sounds very classical and highbrow and safe, doesn't it? But The Rite, R-I-T-E, of Spring was a musical presentation that had partially to do with uh, pagan human sacrifice in the coming of the spring of the year. And at a certain moment in that music, uh, when it was first presented, uh, when the sacrificial m murdering of a human being was being portrayed, uh, the, the, the crowd went nuts. Uh, a riot broke out, and Stravinsky barely escaped with his life. And I'm, I may be wrong about this, but... If I remember correctly, Stravinsky was later influenced in uh, turning to Christ, partly as the spiritual 
being spiritually awakened to the fact that he was delving into a realm of the spirit, of the supernatural, when he uh, manipulated people with music. But anyway, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones made this statement, music works in a mysterious way, he said. Once it goes in you, you have no way of knowing what it will do to you. So much for, well, we just listened to the music. Gene Simmons of KISS, one of my least favorite people in the entire world, has stated uh, on one hand that it's just music, man. It doesn't make any difference. It's just pleasure. And then he turns right around on a number of occasions and makes statements and interviews about how he was amazed that in his concerts uh, he felt that he could just say to a group of people, kill, and they would kill. And that all of this was coming somehow from the power given to him through just the music. It has nothing to do with the lyrics. The lyrics are obvious. We're not talking about the lyrics. We're talking about the mystery of music itself. Another one, Frank Zappa. Many of you remember Frank Zappa, who was one of the greatest spokesmen in favor of the freedom of speech that included speech that could destroy people, hurt people. And Zappa was one of the first ones to stand up and stick his face in a microphone and yell for the world to hear that, quote, music is only music, it can't hurt anybody. Then he turns right around in interviews and says things like here, another quote, music is a tremendous indoctrinational tool that will stay with you the rest of your life. Now, never mind the obvious illogic. of One thing you have to learn about a certain pagan mindset that's becoming more and more predominant in our culture is that consistency is not an issue with them. They don't believe in truth. So no matter how much one statement is obviously in total opposition to another statement they've made and that both cannot possibly be true, never mind that. You're just supposed to bow to the weight of the statement as it's presented, and if you bring out the fact that that contradicts something they've said before, well, you're just a, a hate monger or troublemaker, etc., etc. It's part of the spirit of deception that uh, will condemn the soul. Uh, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, the Bible says, deceiving and being deceived. And, and, and you've got to remember, based on that scripture that I just quoted from 2 Timothy 3, verse, verse 13, it doesn't just say they are deceivers. They are deceived deceivers. So they really do believe when they make these ridiculous statements that are manifestly self-contradictory that somehow you're just not getting it, are you? Why can't you see that music is both harmless and a power that will, quote, stay with you for the rest of your life and has the power to transform your inner life and reach into your unconscious and change you any way that the artist wants to change you? You're supposed to be able to accept both of those positions and uh, uh, not see the obvious contradiction. Dr. Robert Jourdain writes in his study called Music, the Brain, and Ecstasy, quote, Music seems to be the most immediate of all the arts. Music possesses us. It really is as if some other has entered, not just our bodies, but our in emotions, and takes us over, end quote. In his study called The Reorganization of the Brain, Dr. Richard Pellegrino, who happens to be a, a, a brain researcher who works often for the music industry, this is what he says. Music produces an endorphin high. It can trigger a flood of emotions and urges that have the ability to instantaneously produce very powerful changes in our emotional states of mind. Take it from a brain guy, he says. In 25 years of working with the brain, I still cannot affect a person's state of mind the way one simple song can. That's from Billboard magazine, May 23rd, 1999. Rolling Stone, which is one of the archives of the rock and roll era, one of the most respected and oft quoted, says this about music. And again, remember, we're not talking about lyrics. We're just talking about just the music. 
A song or an album can change your life. A great concert will change it on the spot. This is from the same people who say music is just entertainment and it has nothing to do with morals, nothing to do with mindset, nothing to do with character. Now, getting back to the mystical, mysterious opening of the scriptures in Job 38 to us of that event that brought in the brought brought forth the creation of the universe. And there's so much fascinating stuff here. We know for instance that that uh, in physics there there are principles of sound and matter that are too fascinating uh, and, and too far beyond my ability to to explain here. I can read them and understand them, but it's certainly beyond my expertise to be able to communicate it to communicate it to you in such a way that means something. Other than to say that more and more physics research uncovers the relationship between music, light, and matter. Well, that fits what we know from Scripture. All the the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy when God, by his word, brought matter into existence. And then the trinity of God and the trinity of music and the trinity of man somehow relating together so that rhythm corresponds with our body and harmony corresponds with our soul and melody corresponds with our spirit. So that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's a great thing. And I'm going to talk more about the beautiful side of this, much more than I want to talk about the dark side of it. But let's face the fact that there is a tremendously dark side to this. And why would that be? Now, for those of you who know this well, you might want to fast forward through it or just put up with the mundaneness of it if you're bored by it. But there may be many people who listen to this tape that don't know that one of the characteristics of Lucifer found in Ezekiel chapter 28 and also in Isaiah chapter 14, as the prophets describe the fall of the morning star, Lucifer, from his place, you find there in those both both of those chapters inklings, and more than inklings really, that this being who was not an archangel, but the, the prophet Ezekiel says Lucifer was not an archangel, he was a covering cherub. Now if you have the idea that a cherub is a fat baby that wears pampers and, and flies around with little wings and chubby cheeks and shoots bows and arrows, then you need to get a biblical view of the meaning of the word cherub. For the cherubim are revealed to us in Revelation chapter 4, in Ezekiel chapter 1, in Isaiah chapter 6. These are beautiful beings, but be, be, before I can say they're beautiful, they're frightening, they're awesome. And uh, that over word, overused word awesome really does apply to these beings. If you were to see one, you would be reduced to your knees and on your face and in terror as much as in worship. You would never be allowed to worship them. They would not allow you to worship them. They are not worthy of worship for they themselves are beings responsible for the carrying on of the worship of the throne of God. But that that is who Lucifer is revealed to us as, as having been. He was a, the covering cherub. So it's, it looks as if he's not only a cherub, greater than angels or archangels, but he was the greatest of the cherubim. And that his responsibility, among others, was to walk up and down in the place of the stones of God, of the fire of God before the throne of God. And he had in his very body, so to speak, uh, instruments, his very windpipes, his very, his very vocal cords were um, musical instruments. And he was the keeper, the protector, the leader of the worship of God. Well, if that's true, and I think there's good biblical reason to believe that it's true, then then it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, that in his desire to uh, uh, gather to himself a people for his own that will worship him, his chief mode of seduction um, above all others and I think that's an irrefutably obvious statement, if you know the facts, is music. That he, like the Pied Piper who seduces uh, young people into their death, 
the, the Pied Piper of hell, the power of darkness, Lucifer has seduced millions into worshiping him, not necessarily through the lyrics, but through the, the music itself. You know, I know this is subjective, but I was riding down the road here in, in uh, the mountains a few days ago, listening to the local talk radio station, which is supposed to be, by the way, a predominantly conservative uh, and Christian station. It's not a Christian station, but those who those who run it are conservatives and would probably be properly characterized as Christian in their belief system. But you know how radio stations will put little jingles behind certain songs. Well, I'm, I'm riding down the road feeling great, and this commercial comes on with this certain supposed jingle music behind it. I'm, I don't want to tell this unrealistically. I want to try to be as truthful about it as I can. I, but, but I became physically sick. The moment the music, if you want to call it that, the, the, the word music comes from the, the word muse, which has to do with the Greek, the Greek uh, mythology, uh, the spirits in Greek mythology who, who would t- take you into deep thought so that they could impart to you some creative revelation. The, you know, the poet follows the muse. Well, music has to do with being led by some spirit, and it's very important which spirit, isn't it? Well, I want to tell you, whatever spirit there was behind that stuff, and I knew what it was, made me physically sick. Later on, I happened to be with a friend of mine who was doing a lecture at a certain in a youth group on the subject of, of rock and music, and he was demonstrating a certain concept he was trying to get across, and he, he started playing this very music that had been on the radio. It turned out to be a typical rock group, the song was celebrating uh, demon worship. But what had hit me was not the lyrics. I never heard the lyrics because, as you know, in these little jingles, they don't play the lyrics. They just play the music. And it struck me with such a grossness. There was such a sense of grotesqueness in it that it made me physically sick. Well, so Clay, you're just getting old. No, I'm not getting old. Well, I mean, I am getting old, but that's not the point. The point is I'm getting I'm getting older. I'm not getting old. I'm getting older, which I think is a really good thing when you consider the alternative. But that's a different subject. The point I'm trying to make to you is it was just the music that made me sick, and I am not anti-rock and roll. For some of you who don't know that, I mean, I find some certain rock and roll to be very beautiful and very attractive, and that may freak some of you out. You think, well, this guy's crazy. He's listening to too much of whatever it is he's talking about. But I loved Kansas, and I loved Boston, and I loved uh, a lot of the Electric Light Orchestra, and there's a lot of music that I listened to in the 70s that moved me deeply that my parents hated because it just wasn't part of their their world. And some of you who listen to this may feel the same way. By the way, you might think, those of you who don't know who Boston and, and uh, Kansas were, uh, they were not, this was not a road show. I'm not, I wasn't reading out of a road map. <laughs> that was the name of the groups, Kansas, Boston. Anyway, I guess a lot of this stuff in the 70s just uh, sounds like a, a road tour. Chicago, I want to know. But the point is, the music has a spirit behind it. And it does matter what you listen to. But you know what I find with people? And it's not just young people. It's people in general. Music is like water to a fish. When they're floating around in it, they don't see it. Uh, people who, who listen to things that are seductive or that are creepy or that are rebellious that kind of music that has that kind of spirit in it, they don't even realize while they're in it that they're under the influence of something that is influencing them. And they'll argue to the death that that it has no power. And uh, one thing you got to remember, parents, when you're talking to your young people about this, if you just get into a battle over musical styles and which one is good and which one is bad, you're going to lose every time because that's not the premise. 
I mentioned a while ago Igor Stravinsky and the Rite of Spring. Well, if you listen to that, some teenager could listen to that and say, ah, it's that mom and dad's classical elevator music. Well, no, he's, he'd be dead wrong. And if you tell a young person, well, it's got electric guitar in it, so it's got to be of the devil. No, that's not the basis. It's not the, it's not the mode. It's not the guitar. It's not the drums. It's not the, the, you know, the idea that organ music and piano music is somehow the only thing the Holy Spirit will bless is one of the most insipid and silly ideas that ever came down the pike. Do you know what? My generation has become just as narrow-minded. We think the only thing God can bless is guitars and drums. And so, and that gets into a subject too huge for us to even attempt to address here. All I really want to get across in this first half of our time together is that unless you've not thought of it before, you need to, to consider the fact that the music itself has a spirit behind it. It has an attitude, a, a, a heart. It, can it be a human spirit? Well, certainly. I mean, some music is not anointed, but it's not of the devil. It's got a human heart behind it. I mean, what about military march music? What about My Fair Lady or certain uh, songs from Broadway that are that they don't glorify God and they don't glorify the devil. They just try to express life itself. And if you get into such a black and white legalistic mindset as to say that all music is either of God or against God, then you wipe out what it is to be human. There is an element in there of being human. You know, is is uh, and, and here again, I know that's such a, hu- a huge subject. We could end up with all kinds of arguments about it, and that's not my purpose today. My purpose is that you might just be awakened to this fact, not only for your own sake, but for the sake of any under your care. And uh, just so that you can begin to be discerning about it and begin to pay attention to it. Most of the people who get this tape, we have people from all ages and all backgrounds and all educational levels and all spiritual maturity levels. So I know that some of what I'm saying here is, is old hat to many of you and you're bored by it. But for those of you who haven't considered it and have not taken it before the Lord and, and, and really asked God to cleanse out of your spirit any, any musical infestation that the enemy put there that is blinding you or blocking your discernment, then this would be a good time for you to stop the tape and pray that very prayer. Now, for those of you who lived through the 60s, you know that what I'm about to quote here from Plato is so clearly true. You lived through it and you saw it in action. But Plato made the statement also, I quoted him previously, when the modes of music begin to change, the fundamental laws of the state will change with them. In other words, music has the power to change the culture. Not the culture changing the music. The music changes the culture. Plato goes on to say, through foolishness, they, the people, deceived themselves into thinking that there was no right or wrong in music. Again, remember, we're not talking about lyrics. We're talking about the music itself. There was no right or wrong in music, that it was to be judged good or bad only by the pleasure that it gave. As it was, the criterion was not music, but a reputation for promiscuous cleverness and law-breaking. In other words, to say that more clearly, he's saying the the people in their self-deception begin to foolishly believe that the music did not stir up lustful behavior or or rebellious law-breaking behavior that it, it was just pleasure it's just, i mean you, he could have written that yesterday rather than uh 2800 years ago that's why aristotle said that music should be governed by the government and of course of course, we don't believe that as Americans, but uh, Andrew Fletcher, the Scottish philosopher, said in the 1800s, let me write a, a nation's ballads and I don't care who writes its laws. Lenin said that music is the greatest tool for social and political transformation. I don't mean John Lennon. I mean Vladimir Lenin. Now, before we go to our other section of this study, let me tell you a positive example of social transformation that music can produce. In Alberta, Canada, there was a city park that had become taken over by drug activity. 
the police had given up on it. But the police decided to pump music into that park through speakers, and they played Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart. You know what happened? Crime was decreased 800% over a period of a few weeks. Now, I mentioned piano and organ music a while ago, and I didn't mean to to make that sound derogatory. I mean, there are certain aspects of that kind of music and that style that I still love and enjoy. But I learned a long time ago not to sanctify any particular kind of music as being holy. For instance, those people who rant and rave at their children for liking more modern kinds of music as opposed to classical would have a hard time explaining to their parents or, or to their children why, if classical is evidence of good taste in music, that when Nazi soldiers had spent the day killing Jews in Auschwitz, they would often then go home and sit and listen to Bach or Beethoven as they ate dinner. Or how many times Nazis would force Jewish musicians in the death camps to sit and play for them classical music while they ate between their butchery. So don't get the idea that there's any certain kind of music per se that God blesses and will never bless another kind. I I don't like rap in almost any form, but I've even seen the Holy Spirit bless that. Now, some things God, some of you may really be upset at me if I say this, but there's some things I don't think God can ever bless. To be quite blunt, I've seen youth groups get into trying to play Christian, quote, rock, and they would be so influenced by the pagan rock that they were trying to emulate that they they didn't have the discernment to, to know that many of the gesticulations and activities they were fondling their guitar to mimic the, the, the pagans by doing was a pagan form of masturbatory celebration of, of Baal. And they were doing the same thing in the name of the Lord. Well, let's tell you, sticking the name of the Lord on it didn't sanctify it one bit. It was perverse when the pagan group, group did it, and it was perverse when the Christian group did it. And doing it in the name of Jesus just blasphemed his holy name. It didn't sanctify the rock. It dishonored the Lord. So, I mean, there's some things God's never going to bless because it's not blessable because the very nature of it is of itself evil. And I know we're not going to settle that question here today, but surely if you're seeking the Lord, you know that already. Now, when I was 12 years old, some of you have heard this story, so forgive me if I repeat it again. I'll try not to labor it, but when I was 12 years old, after going through the agony of molestation and all the darkness that that brought, I was taken by my parents to a Christmas presentation of Handel's Messiah, sitting in that auditorium that that night on the university campus. I'd never heard music like that in my life, and it was the spirit in the music that reached inside of me. And as the chorus began to sing that scripture from Malachi chapter 2, he shall purify the sons of Levi. I remember the feeling inside of longing to be purified. But here again, I'm not really focusing on the the lyrics. I'm focusing on the spirit in the music. The music began to make me weep before the chorus ever spoke one word or sang one word. And so there should be no surprise to us that when we open the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, music is the backdrop of this drama And in very specific books of the scripture, music plays a tremendously important role. Obviously, we know that in the Psalms, we would think of that immediately, even if we don't know much about the Bible. But there are many, many other places. For instance, in Nehemiah, uh, if you were to study just the scriptures in the book of Nehemiah on music, you would see the tremendous power music played in the restructuring of the fallen temple. Uh, God seems to to put a background of music in the major events in the universe. The creation of the universe, the birth of his son. I know some so-called scholars say the angels didn't sing, but it's just a nitpicking preoccupation with Greek grammar. Uh, I don't if the if the morning stars sang together when the universe was created, you, I think you can bet your bottom dollar they sang when the son of God descended 
from the throne and entered the womb of Mary for the redemption of the world. If the angels desire to look into this, even though they don't understand it, you better believe they worshiped and shouted and danced and sang when he came to the earth to accomplish his father's will. And then the whole book of Revelation is filled with singing, with worship, and with manifestation of a response from the musical part of the soul and spirit of creation. Now, that being true, what's all this I'm talking about? What, what, what's it got to do with where you are right now? So, Clay, it's interesting information so far, but what's it, what's it going to do to help me? Well, I'll tell you what it'll do to help you. If you could learn that your body is an instrument of worship, one thing I tell our folks in church, if you can't sing good, sing loud. And that's scriptural. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. How many times do you come before his presence with singing? Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Sing unto the Lord a new song, for he has done glorious, wonderful things. His right hand, his holy arm has gotten us the victory. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider has fallen into the sea. That's just a few examples. One of my favorite ones, which we'll look at here in just a minute, is from Isaiah chapter 59, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 54, where God says to the barren, Sing, O barren woman, you have not brought forth a child. But before we get to that, let me address a problem I run across in some Christians about what they call Old Testament worship. It's like, you know, there's no, there's no, I know there's a whole denomination that has this mindset. There's no New Testament example of clapping or dancing or shouting. And so because there's no New Testament example, then we shouldn't have that in our churches. And that's remarkable, I think. Forgive me if I sound unnecessarily critical, but I think a demon spirit is behind that whole way of thinking because the worship and the praise and the glorification of the name of the Lord Jesus through his people is not only to glorify God, it's not only to gladden and lighten our hearts, but it has supernatural power in it for the releasing of people from bondages. And so if the enemy knows that, certainly he would like to wrap bondage around that which would break the bondage. There's, there's such a great misunderstanding among so many of God's people concerning the importance of Old Testament Scripture, not just worship. The attitude is that whatever is of the Old Testament has no authority or import in the life of, quote, New Testament believers. Such thinking is usually selective. No one, for instance, would say that the Ten Commandments are merely Old Testament and therefore have no place in our lives. And it is certainly true that there are aspects of the Mosaic Law which no longer have any place in the life of a believer. But if we're to understand the spirit of the entire Scripture, then we're going to see that the Apostle Paul directs us repeatedly to Scripture for instruction, teaching, correction, and example. And the only Scripture he could possibly have been referring to would have been the Old Testament. If you want Scripture for that, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Romans chapter 15, verse 3. 2 Timothy 3.16 for a few examples. And as you examine the biblical directives concerning how God wants us to worship him, then we've got to lay aside our own tendency to embrace our point of view and begin to just bow to what the Scripture says about worship, praise, music, singing, and I'm going to throw in with this all the other manifestations of physical expression like raising of hands, clapping hands, dancing before the Lord. Because if we don't, then we're going to become like the Pharisees Jesus rebuked in Mark chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, when he said, In vain do you worship me with your lips, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men, neglecting the commandments of God. You hold rather to your own traditions. I don't think any of us want to do that. Now, when it comes to the subject of spiritual music, here again, we get into real struggles. There's some of us that just think the only thing God can bless is Bach. Others of us think the only thing God can bless is black, 
Others think the only thing God can bless is piano and organ. And all of these prejudices, I think we can live with. You know, we, we can forgive each other's tastes. But you know what? If you go beyond just musical taste and ask this question, is it glorifying Jesus? Is the Holy Spirit in it? Is, does it draw me to want to worship and honor and obey him? Or does it just make me tap my foot? I mean, you know that song, Walking in Memphis? I love the song. It's got great piano licks in it. But it, the guy says, uh, you know, he goes to Memphis and this black woman singing the gospel and she says, boy, are you a Christian? And he says, ma'am, I am tonight. Well, that ain't going to do him a bit of good on Judgment Day if he ain't really the, the Lord's. It don't matter what he was in Memphis while he was feeling all spiritual because she got him all going with some soulish song that made him tap his foot. And the same way, we got to be careful that we're not just talking about our emotions when we talk about worship. We're not just talking about musical modes that stimulate us and stir us up when we're talking about worship. You can worship with no music. And you obviously, you, you know, there's a danger of, of people equating worship and music as being the same thing. Certainly we can worship through music and certainly we can worship without music and certainly we can enjoy music that's not worshipful. All of those are valid. But when, I, when it comes to the subject of the mysterious power that is in music as God intended it, I just wonder if you ever think about the power of the song. For instance, Psalm 32 talks about us being surrounded by songs of deliverance. So the Bible speaks of songs that bring deliverance. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider fell into the sea. That's a song that responds to God's deliverance. But this other verse I just mentioned from Psalm 32 seems to speak of, of or it might be Psalm 34, my, my handwriting. I can't read my own handwriting sometimes. But it, it, it could very well be that the song of deliverance that the psalmist is talking about is not a song that is responding to having been delivered, but it is a song that brings the deliverance. The song itself is the weapon. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Now, what about fanaticism and emotionalism, Clay? You're getting into that territory where people can get all kind of emotionally wound up and that bugs me, man. I don't like getting around that kind of stuff. And if you've watched some Christian television, it can just make you want to run the other direction. And I understand that. But things like raising of hands and clapping hands and bowing are sadly often taken to two extremes. One, either the extreme that destroys the, tr and either one of the extremes will destroy. You know, extremes will destroy the good, no matter which extreme you go to. But on the one hand, there are those who behave in a way that makes the act itself the end in itself. They shout and act out in such ways that they are bringing attention more to themselves than to the Lord. Or even worse, they act in such ways uh, with no conscious effort to focus on God himself. Their singing or their dancing or whatever it is becomes a mere empty show. And I think God hates it. In fact, and I know we hate it. But such behavior may be motivated by sheer fleshly emotionalism, or it may be due to a lack of proper leadership and instruction, and we have to be careful not to sit in judgment of people's demonstrations like that. Um, or we may be inadvertently becoming guilty of the sin that Michael, uh, that Michael was guilty of when she was ashamed of David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what happened to her? She was, she was barren. There's a barrenness that comes upon us when we resist the worship of God. Our worship should be done with proper understanding. That's what 1 Corinthians 14, 15 says, and Romans 12, 1 through 3 says. We should understand how to worship. Our worship should be both from the heart, emotional, through our bodies, and with an understanding mind. But that really is another subject. I still want to focus on the power of singing itself. Now, if we make singing itself an object of uh, focus, it can become idolatrous. Amos chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, God says, 
don't sing me your songs. I hate your festivals. Uh, he, he, he uses the strongest language to describe his hatred of empty singing for singing's sake. And along with this rebuke is the warning that worship is also made a detestable thing in God's eyes when our hearts are not right with each other. If we live unjustly and speak evil of one another and then lift our hands before God, our worship is meaningless to God. God is more concerned with our relationship with each other uh, and harmony in, in, in our relationships than harmony in our vocals. But just just as surely as there is such a thing as fanaticism of of exuberance, I think there's also such a thing as a fanaticism of silence. And our possible overreaction against detestable displays of emotionalism or even hypocrisy, we may easily go too far in the other direction, that of total silence, a refusal to allow our bodies to enter into the worship we claim to be in our hearts. We may fear that we're appearing emotional or hypocritical, and we may fear that drawing attention to ourselves is what people will think we're doing. But all that is understandable based on how much we might have been subjected to the stuff we've just been discussing. But here's the problem. God desires to be worshipped. And he desires that we lay aside all such fears regardless of our inner concerns and begin to seek to obey him in actions of worship. For throughout the entire Bible, worship is always, without exception, connected to bodily actions as well as heart attitude. And it seems to be a successful ploy of the enemy to keep the open, verbal, and physical expression of worship of the living God silent among God's people. An entire tradition of silence, what I call a fanatical silence, has taken hold of much of the church in the West, contributing to a lifeless form of mind activity that refuses to allow the body or the emotions to participate. Now Paul addresses this, as I've already mentioned, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 1 through 3, when he says, Present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service of worship. And that Greek word reasonable there is where we get the word logic. It's logikos, logikos. And he's saying there that he's not saying that worship is only to be in the cerebellum. He's saying that worship is to be understood. You're to understand what you're doing. You're not to just go into some kind of spasmic fit but you're also not to stand there like a mummy either. You're to willfully, logically, then physically and emotionally enter in to the full expression of worship. And I don't know what does that for you stronger than singing. There's something about lifting our voice and singing that does that. It just brings the whole... the whole. Uh, I love the way this is demonstrated in Lord of the Rings, and it's not, it does not come through the movie. Uh, if you want to understand this, the beauty of this, you're going to have to read the books if you haven't read them. But uh, when Sam is, is confronting Shelob in that cave, and he, he lifts up the, uh, the elven star, and he begins to sing. Uh, by the way, he begins to sing in another language. And as he begins to sing, the power of the holy and the good comes shining through him and drives Shelob back. Well, they they didn't know how to portray that in the movie. I forgive them for that because they just didn't know how to do it. But I know how to do it. I know what it meant, and I know I know what Tolkien meant. Even if Tolkien didn't know what he meant, I know what he meant. But anyway, uh, the willful suppression of our child likeness is one of the purposes of the enemy. He wants to steal the lifting up of our voice in praise. And yet we'll do it for our favorite football team. I know you've heard that before and it's cliche, but it is true. You'll jump and shout and act like a nut over your ball club. But when the king of the universe is in view, you stand there in silence and call that reverence. Now, yes, there is a place for silence. And sometimes silence is reverent. But you know what? If 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 the Holy Spirit is saying, 
Worship the king. Glorify his name. And you don't do it. You're being irreverent by not doing it. See, there's, there's not, to reverence is to honor the presence of the king. And so if the mode of honoring him happens to be clapping hands or shouting or, or singing, and you're not doing it because you're, you're so into being silent, then you're being irreverent. Can't you see that? Now, many of you who receive this tape are in parts of the country where you don't have much fellowship. I'm aware of that. Some of you are, and I, I, I hope you're seeking it. I hope even if it's just a prayer group or a small circle of friends like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego met in Babylon, you can, you can find somebody that knows Jesus, and there, where two or three are gathered, Jesus is in the midst. But for those of you who are truly, for whatever reason, you're alone, you can really take hold of this. You could, because some of you say, well, I don't sing well. Good. If you're all alone, then if you can't sing good, sing loud. Begin to lift up your voice. Begin to sing to God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, I will sing with my spirit. I will sing with the understanding also. He puts singing on the same level as praying. And sometimes singing is more powerful than just verbal prayer. It cuts through things. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, don't be drunk with wine in the misuse of wine in excess, but be filled with the Spirit, singing to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. This is a picture of a gathering of believers who are ministering to each other in song. When he says sing to yourselves, he doesn't mean just sing, just, I'm just going to sing a little song to myself so nobody can hear it. That's not what he's saying. He's singing sing to each other, Build up each other in song, both corporate and in, in ministry to each other. And that's hard to understand how to do if you've never seen it demonstrated. But my point is, there is a way of breaking through spiritual resistances. Fasting, for instance, is an added weapon in our arsenal that we can use when we are up against unusual difficulty. Well, so is singing. And that brings me to a verse I mentioned a while ago in uh, Isaiah chapter 54. Sing, O barren, you who could not bring forth. And then the whole chapter is a promise of of fruitfulness and fulfillment and blessedness. And the prophet is using the most wounded, the most depressed, the most rejected of people of his culture, and that was a woman who had not been able to give birth to a child. You know the agony. If you know anything about Scripture at all, you know the great agony that a woman was put through, not by God and not by God's will, but by the ignorance of the culture of of women being considered somehow cursed by God because they're not able to bring forth. And then there is the example of, that I used a while ago of, of, of Michal when she dishonored David uh, by uh, uh, disdaining him for worshiping the Lord in a way that she thought was beneath her dignity and how she became barren. So whether there, the barrenness is just a misfortune of being on a fallen planet or even if it's a judgment from the Lord, it can be reversed. How can it be reversed? Well, This is that song of deliverance that the psalmist talked about. Sing, O barren, you who could not give birth. And you begin to lift your voice and you begin to sing to God. And what are you singing? Well, I keep a hymn book handy. I don't know how many of you do that. If you don't do that, it'll help you. It'll help you a lot. Keep a hymn book handy. And when I'm hitting a dry place where I just feel like I can't get through, I don't feel like praying, I feel as spiritual as a doorknob, I don't feel like I'm getting through. And I can't even think of anything to sing. Well, I just reach over there and grab something, open it up. And I, There's some bad hymns that you don't want to sing. I mean, they're just boring or they're bad theology. But for the most part, you can find many, many, many hymns that express your heart. You say, well, why do I want to borrow somebody else's song? Because you ain't got one of your own. That's why. And you know what? If you borrow somebody else's song, it's exactly what you're doing when you're reading the Psalms. 
So you borrow it and you you draw all, you drink water out of their well until you can you can begin to be a fountain of your own. And as you begin to do that, as you begin to lift your voice, as you begin to lift your heart, as you begin to lift your hands, the Holy Spirit will begin to lift your life and you will begin to feel the presence and power of the Holy Spirit coming up under your wings and lifting you up from whatever you're in. And it goes so far in Isaiah 54 as to say that this barren woman who could not conceive will begin to bring forth so much children that she'll have to enlarge her tent. She'll have to enlarge her house. What is it in your life right now that is barren? What What is it in your experience that is not fruitful? And you've tried and you've tried and you've tried, just like a barren woman would have certainly tried a married woman desperate to give her husband a baby, tried and tried to, to to conceive. You know, I think of Mary in the, the, the Magnificat. My soul does magnify the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for the Almighty has con- considered the, the, the position of his lowly handmaiden and that which is being done in me is of the Holy Spirit and she begins to sing. She begins to glorify God. She begins to, to glorify the Lord there in, in the opening chapters of Luke. That would be a good place for you to go to, to learn. I mean, you want to overcome barrenness? You begin to sing to the Lord. You begin to let the Holy Spirit give you songs. You begin to sing songs uh, from the hymn book if you, can't, if you don't know else how to start. You begin to glorify the Lord. Get a chorus book. You know, songs that bless you, songs that you hear now and then that really bless you. Why don't you write them down, learn the lyrics, and then begin to sing them yourself? Say, so, well, Clay, I just cannot stand this, the way I sound when I sing. Well, then why are you focusing on how you sound? It ain't, it ain't for you. It ain't for your pleasure. You're not the audience. You're not. <laughs> What's that got to do with it? That's why I'm telling you, third time I've said this, if you can't sing good, sing loud. You begin to sing to God out of your spirit and you begin to lift your voice. And as you do that, I'm telling you, some of you who have never been able to be free in worship, you've never been able to be free in the spirit, you've never been able to be free in your emotions, what is it that binds you up? Some of you who are terrified, so you, you can't read and write. I know people who can't read and write. They were so put under bondage in grammar school by oppressive uh, uh, educational systems they just can't think clearly. You ever Have you ever thought about just lifting that up to God and asking the Holy Spirit to wash that out of you? What about failure to communicate with your spouse? You just can never seem to communicate. You always say the wrong thing. You always end up in a squabble because you miss each other. Have you ever just lifted that up to God and just begin to sing to the Lord? What about fear? Have you ever, perfect love casts out all fear. You begin to just sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous, marvelous things. His right hand, his holy arm has gotten you the victory. You begin to sing to God. There is, there's a delivering power that is set in motion when you sing. Based on all that we've talked about in our previous uh, moments together in this study, we spent the first 30 minutes talking about the, the dark side of it, I want to tell you, if the enemy can use the dark side of it, why in the world are we, God's people, not awake to the fact that there is a holy side of it that we have not taken advantage of, and we've even allowed the enemy to let his songs be sung from A to Izzard, while the song of the Lord is silenced by traditionalism, legalism, and our own inhibited pride. So what are you going to do with this? You know, you, I heard one more tape. Don't, don't, I love y'all and I love to hear from you and please don't misunderstand me. I'm never, never without gratitude when you tell me you enjoyed a tape. But please don't write me and tell me you enjoyed this tape and not obey it. You know, don't tell me, oh man, I really got a lot out of that. But you still don't lift your voice to God. You still, you never sing. You still never let the spirit in you rise up in you to express itself before God. Uh, you know, you don't do it in church. You don't do it alone. You don't do it in a small group. You don't do it anywhere. And you got all kind of bondages in your mind that disguise themselves as excuses. 
Why, so I've even known some people to work it out like this. They say, you know, I don't ever want to be a hypocrite, and I just take great, I take great spiritual pride in not being a hypocrite. And what you're really doing is finding a way to disobey the scriptures on these subjects and even not only disobey them, but congratulate yourself that you're not really being disobedient, you're really being virtuous. <laughs> I know, I mean, I, I've had the same struggles. I, I understand them. But throw them aside and begin to sing to the Lord with all your might. God bless you. I love you. Hope to talk to you again soon.